Yes, and, and, and I'll take some credit for this because by, by getting Nike sued by the Beatles, it showed Nike what the potential of advertising was. JP. JC. I think that I'm going to send this to him shortly. So maybe we can just do like a little bit of a run uh, into the intro. Are you cool with that? Um, okay. okay. So, um, okay. I, yeah, I'm probably, it. this is one of those, those guests who it's hard because he's one of my favorite people, um, period. <laughs> um, and so he's also one of my p- favorite people from Nike. I don't <laughs> want to pay, pay like, play like favored nations, you know, with our guests or whatever, but Mark is somebody who I've known, you know, for a really long time and, uh, is just somebody who has become again, another mentor to me. Mark's role in leading the business affairs group at Nike for so many years. He's got so much um, amazing history um, and so many cool stories to tell that I think that, you know, you and I both thought that he would be an amazing person to have on the podcast. I think I agree with you. I think I've known Mark for quite some time. Um, We have a pretty unique story as well. Um, We're definitely connected since he's left Nike as well as I. Um, and so I'm very excited to kind of just give everybody an opportunity to really know what Nike is. I think people, you know, when we speak with other guests who've been there for 20, 10 to 20, you know, 25 years, it's, it's definitely Nike. But like Mark's been with Nike for 30 plus years and he's had some amazing stories. So I can't wait to just kind of dig deep and, and kind of hear his storyline to, you know, questions Um, that we have for him. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. (laughs) So, like, Mark, I think that, you know, obviously I've known you for a long time. I know your history at Nike and kind of, like, where you started. And But that I I would love to hear more about, like, your journey from the (laughs) East Coast to the West Coast. And like what precipitated that and maybe then that how that, you know, kind of created that journey to Nike. Okay, that's fair enough. I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts and uh, graduated from the University of Massachusetts in 1971. Uh, I started at the University of Pennsylvania Law School in 1971 and decided to drop out before first day of regular classes. It was not the right time for me, and Penn was not the right place for me. Um, so I went back to Worcester. I worked in a uh, warehouse and also s- spent some time in Amherst, Mass, selling photographs that I had taken door to door in dorms <laughs> in Amherst. Uh, I decided that I wanted to uh, teach elementary school, so I got a degree in uh, elementary education from the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. I went and started thinking about where I might like to uh, teach. And um, one of my uh, best friend's younger brother was in graduate school in Oregon. And he would come back and rave about uh, Eugene and just what life was like in Oregon. And um, I was ready for that kind of adventure. So I was lucky enough to have uh, contacted a young superintendent of schools from a school district outside of Philadelphia who had just taken the job as the uh, superintendent in uh, Eugene, school district 4J in Eugene. 
I went, took the train down to uh, Springfield, Pennsylvania, met with him, and uh, he hired me. And I, sight unseen, I packed up and moved to Oregon. And, you know, within a month, I had fallen in love with the place. It was nice, you know, to have, uh, I think I get out there in June and school didn't start in September. So I got to play around, go up the Cougar Reservoir, um, go down the coast. It was just, uh, I just loved being in Oregon. But there was a, a part of me that I wanted. So I taught grade school in Eugene for four years. Uh, the last three were at a public alternative school uh, a few blocks from uh, Hayward Field. But part of me wanted to show myself that I could uh, do law school. It wasn't a burning desire to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't know what lawyers did. But uh, it just seemed like uh, something that I should try. So I went back and went to law school at Oregon. Um, after I graduated, I spent a year clerking for the Oregon Supreme Court, then went to work for a uh, law firm, downtown Portland law firm. Was there for two and a half years when a memo came across saying that Nike was looking for uh, attorneys. The law firm didn't think that any of the associates at the law firm would want to leave a prestigious law firm to go work in-house counsel, but there were about nine of us who jumped on it. Um, I was lucky than other people because my <laughs> wife had taught high school in Eugene with a woman who then went to work for Nike in the personnel department. So she got me an interview with uh, Lindsay Stewart, was the chief counsel at the time. Um, Lindsay and I hit it off. He said, well, would you like to come out here and do uh, Nike sports marketing work? And I said, I would pay you to leave the law firm and come out to Nike to do the sports marketing work. <laughs> the, the single worst negotiation I ever did in my life. But, um, he, he, was, he, was, yeah, he gave me about $500 more than I was making at the law firm so uh, to, to feel good about myself. Um, I came out to Nike. We were on, I think it's, what is it, the German-American school now on? The one uh, across the street from the old Kmart on Murray. We, uh, the legal department uh -huh. was on the top floor of that building yes. across from the executive offices with Phil and, and Del Hayes and Strasser and all those people were. Um, I did all of Nike's sports marketing work and, as well as uh, real estate. So Nike had several uh, mills in New Hampshire and Maine that we were selling off. So I got to work on that and also work on my first legal project was Jordan's first Nike contract. Then I did all of the college coaches contract work. Uh, I get to negotiate depending on who was in charge of sports marketing at the time. Some people liked negotiating, other people didn't. And when we had ones who didn't, then I get to negotiate the deals rather than uh, just do the legal work on them. So I did that for four and a half years. And then they said, you know, we want, we want to move you to something else. So they put me in charge of special projects at Nike. So my advice to people at Nike is if they ask you to do special projects, run in the other direction. <laughs> it was one of those special jobs that they had. Poster department reporting to me. They had entertainment marketing reporting to me, and then they said I could 
you know, do whatever ambush or guerrilla marketing I could come up with. Um, both the poster program and entertainment marketing were well run. There was nothing for me, nothing to do and to add to what they were doing. Um, so it was always kind of like stepping on people's toes. So after doing that for about a year, uh, we came up with a, uh, a solution that would uh, kind of play off of what I was good at. And, and that was setting up uh, a business affairs department, which basically was looking at the rights Nike needed to do the ads. And I'll say ads, but it was, you know, if we did documentaries or, or uh, you know, zines or whatever kind of content Nike was doing, looking at them, advising people what rights they needed to do, what they wanted to do, whether it was negotiating music or talent, or uh, if we were using somebody's intellectual property like NBA marks, MLB marks, securing permission from them to use their marks. So I did that for... Uh, 27 and a half years, and then I retired. <laughs> How's that for oh. Is that <laughs> <laughs> No, I loved it. By the way, yeah, the special projects, I agree with you, Rudd, <laughs> because I think those were called stretch assignments at the time. Um, so. you know, I, I think always virtual jobs at Nike where, where you are basically charged with influencing other people to accomplish what you want to get done. It, it's, it's just hard. You know, it, uh, people, I don't want to say territorial, but they have their responsibilities and, you know, trying to herd a group of people who have their own responsibilities to do something that's your vision may not be necessarily be their vision. It, it, I think it's better to have a non-virtual job, although it seems like everybody in the world is virtual now. So maybe maybe I'm just you know thirty years ahead of my time. <laughs> so Mark, I'm just curious because you know obviously we take for granted that business affairs is a huge part of brands and agencies now, and it seemed like you had created the first business affairs department at Nike. Did you have any sort of guidance on what you were doing at that point, like yeah. building the team um, that you were building? I had done a lot of work that we would traditionally think of as business affairs when I was in the legal department doing the sports marketing work. Uh, for example, Nike wanted to do a poster with Jordan in his uniform. We had no uh, uniform rights from the NBA, so it took me like three years to convince them that the world wouldn't end if they gave us a a poster license so we could do the poster of Jordan uh, jumping uh, at the slam dunk contest in Chicago. Um, other ads where we wanted to use players in uniform, I had to go out and secure the rights from the NFL and MLB. I mean, this is prior to Nike doing mega deals. This was just, you know, rights to use the marks in advertising. Uh, and maybe even apparel. I think we had some t-shirt rights. So I was familiar with that. And then when we wanted to use music and ads, I also went out and negotiated those. So I had some sense of, of what would be needed in this new department. So it was just transferring it out of the legal department and setting up my own department, which started with me and an admin and one uh, business affairs uh, manager. And that's how we started. Wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> and would you say, Mark, that uh, from having a legal background coming into Nike doing the negotiations, was it what you expected or was it more of like it was a great opportunity for you to build these networks and relationships and then be able to yeah, kind of negotiate I, these contracts? There's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I've always had the philosophy that um, you get better deals when people actually like you, you know, and, and... And uh, money has to be in the ballpark, but um, I, I think, you know, I dealt with the same people in the music industry, the talent industry, the leagues for, you know, 20, 25, 30 years. And I knew when, you know, they needed to squeeze the extra 10 grand for me for a piece of music because they had a client who was hard for them to deal with it. And I knew that they would reciprocate when I said, hey, this is it. This is what I have for this piece of music or for your client. Um, and, and having had a good relationship with them and, you know, they knew I did it low. But if, if I had $200,000 for a piece of music that should cost three hundred, I didn't go in offering 100. You know, I would not, I would go in somewhere, you know, that they could still enjoy the, uh, the negotiation, but it wasn't, let's, I'll start low, you start high and we'll meet in the middle. That's not how I negotiated. So, um, I, I, I think I had some, some sense, you know, but it was a learn it was a learning curve. You know, I, at the law firm, I didn't do any negotiations dealing with the kinds of intellectual property that I was dealing with, uh, at Nike, other than I had to do a, somebody wanted to lease an Appaloosa, one of our clients at the law firm. So I had to figure out how you lease a horse, but I don't know. I think that might have helped me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, but Mark, so yep. you started in 1984 and Wyden and Kennedy had started with, you know, Nike is their account probably what, like two years prior to that. So it was still kind of early stages. Um, did Nike have like a pretty decent advertising group at that time yeah, when you were you know, starting your team? When I was starting my team, Nike had just started realizing, and, and, and I'll take some credit for this because by, by getting Nike sued by the Beatles, it showed Nike what the potential of advertising was. Uh, when we did the revolution ad, you know, when I started at Nike, Nike advertising was print ads and runner's world. There was very few TV commercials. Um, so, you know, when I moved to advertising, so that's like 87, 88, we had done the spike mic stuff and we did revolution in Bono's. So I, I think it was, Nike was uh, getting a sense as to what advertising could do for the brand, along with the other pillars of product and sports marketing. So did like, was that work created like with, with Wyden? Was that just like a handful of people at really high levels of marketing or did they have an established, yeah, uh, you know, was, advertising uh, group that worked? See. I'm trying to remember when Bedbury came in. Scott Bedbury came in, and, and I think you got to give a lot, Scott, a lot of credit for for helping develop Nike's advertising department. Um, his immediate predecessor was a woman named Cindy Hill, who was also great. But you know, she, the major campaigns what Cindy did was the I Love LA 
1984 uh, Los Angeles mm-hmm. Olympics where they used the Randy Newman song and they also did a great uh, guerrilla marketing campaign with posters of Carl Lewis and Mary Slaney and Pedro Guerrero and uh, uh, what was Lester Hayes that dominated the LA freeways and stuff to the point where people thought that Nike was the official sponsor of the US Olympic team when in fact it was Converse that year. Um, but Bedberry, I think, you know, inherited what Cindy did, but also, you know, built it up and, and started, the department started growing um, in, in those years, which I think were like 87, 88 to maybe 91 and 92, if I have my dates right. Okay. Yeah. Like, Mark, like when you got moved into advertising um, from Google to, to sports marketing to advertising, how was, how did you handle like the kind of ambiguity of all that and like working with Wyden and Kennedy and building these relationships with the, the, the entertainment industry and the athletes? I mean, how, how, how were you kind of, did you feel like you had a lot of like pressure and you kind of just took it and, and went with it? Or were you like, okay, I must strategically start doing A, B, and C to get to where I need to be? That's a good question. Um, did I feel pressure? Uh, I felt an obligation to, um, you know, my job, people would come to me with, this is what I want to do. This is, you know, what I worked on, either, you know, the Nike account people or the Widen people. And my job often was to tell them what we can't, you know, either we can't afford to use that piece of music or that talent, right? Or the league will not allow us to use uniforms unless we change this, or you're putting Nike at too big a legal risk if we did, you know, the way you want to do it. So it was, my job was to try to help them get as close to their creative vision as we could without either costing Nike too much money, pissing off some of our, our, our partners or getting Nike sued. And I think people felt um, from the beginning in dealing with me that I really did want to get them as close to uh, what they envisioned as, as we possibly could. So it was, I had a good rapport with the creatives at Wyden, uh, with the account people that I dealt with at Wyden and at Nike, that they, they felt I was doing everything that I could to help them, you know, come out with the best possible ad that they could. Amazing. So, Mark, um, I just we I have to ask you some questions around <laughs> the manuscript that you um, so graciously so- gave us some <laughs> perspective on, and there are some there are some incredible stories in there, and we, we got to save those stories for when you're going to hit the market. So, can you tell us a little bit about your like? you know, that, that process of going back yeah, and, yeah, and well, well, reliving some of those with, memories. Um, I think legally I could put the manuscript out without Nike's consent, but N- Nike was real. I had a great 31 year career there much better than I ever could have imagined as a fledgling lawyer at a downtown law firm. So I went to Nike and I, and I asked for permission and um, you know, the answer that I was given 
was that your book is totally positive. We don't have any concerns about that, but there are so many people retiring who are wanting to write books and either maybe conflating what they did at Nike or maybe had a bone to pick that if we say yes to you, it puts us in the situation we're going to have to say yes to everybody and we don't want to do that. So I accepted that as an answer and, you know, I, I've uh, got, you know, one of the stories that I wanted to tell, I got printed in Slam online and, and there are a couple of the stories that, you know, eventually somebody may want to pick up on and, and run with. But um, it, unless there's a change of heart um, at Nike, there will be no, no manuscript. So, um, yeah. No way. Wow. wow. Okay. But, but you know, it, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the stuff Jesse and I have been reading is, you know, how to get rid of your ego. And I'm there thinking, you know, what, what uh -huh. is a book about my experiences at Nike other than is it too big an ego thing? Maybe the universe was sending me a message that, you know, I don't really need to put this book out there. So, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it as far as um, I would have liked to have gotten more of the stories out because I think they, they reflect well on Nike in their in entertaining. Um, I don't have any illusions that I'm, uh, you know, the next Hemingway or Steinbeck or Malcolm Gladwell, but I think the stories themselves <laughs> are pretty entertaining. So, yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer of ego as well. Like, put that out the door. But but when I read what the manuscript was, I was more intrigued as a fan from the storytelling. Um, so just know that it, it, I feel like you're just a Rolodex of amazing stories. And, and what I read was I was just like, I had some laughs. I felt like I, I, I was there with you, um, you know, to what you were going through. So, I mean hopefully maybe someday <laughs> it can be out there but i'm just calling it out you know I, I so that. you know i've sent it out to you know 10 or 15 people who i knew would in, would enjoy hearing the story you know a lot of people have heard some of the stories there other than i think my wife nobody has heard all of the stories so it was <laughs> fun for me you know in worst case scenario my kids got to uh you know, because uh, they were not too young, but sort of young when I was doing a lot of the stuff that they, they get to see what I experienced in my career at Nike. Yeah, I mean, I just want to just again with what John said, I mean, I felt the same way. And, you know, I learned a lot. I obviously know a lot about your career and the work that you've done, but I learned a lot and I was laughing like hard at a little bunch of the anecdotes that you told. And um, I think that it's interesting because, you, you know, you talk about your ego or whatever, but I think to John's point, it's a storytelling and you have an experience working at one of the most incredible brands in the world during a time that they created some of the most incredible advertising in the world and you were in the heart of it you know like there isn't like a lot of people that have that kind of story to tell and so i appreciate that you are looking at it through the lens of ego but people are really interested in that stuff obviously and i think that 
I mean, hopefully, maybe even John and I can help figure out a way to make that come to life, even if it's not a traditional sort of like format, like a book to like maybe, you know, do some storytelling through podcasts or other means to try to get some of that out there. Because I, I think it would be a shame if people weren't able to access that. You guys want me back another time and you cherry pick some of the stories, I'd be happy to uh, happy to tell them. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I have to ask, like, you know, of the projects that you worked on, what what are at least like one, if you can definitely touch on a couple that really stuck with you that you felt really proud of that, you know, that sure. continue to and, resonate and, with and you. It's funny because um, I started, you know, my, my career in advertising, getting my pursued by the Beatles and then you know, however many decades later, they came to me, uh, the agency came to me and they wanted to do an ad with Kevin Durant and they wanted to have Dick Gregory in it. So my first question to the ad guy at the agency was, how do you know who Dick Gregory is? Because, you know, you are <laughs> generations removed from knowing who Dick Gregory was. And, you know, he explained, I said, you know that Dick Gregory's not... Dick Gregory's not going to agree to be in a Nike ad. But I will ask because that's, you know, what Nike pays me to do. Okay. And so if you're not familiar with Dick Gregory, Dick at one point was probably the highest paid comedian in the 50s, highest paid comedian in, in America. I mean, he was just his comedy albums, his appearances on, on the Jack Parr show. Uh, which was the predecessor to Johnny Carson, his, his stand-up routines. He was just on fire. And he um, decided to just walk away from it because he wanted to put all of his efforts into the civil rights movement. So he, he had done fundraisers for Medgar Evers and other people, um, but it just hit him one day and he's just, you know, I'm going to walk away from it. Now, 10 kids, they moved to a farm in Beverly, Massachusetts. Um, and he must have saved enough money that they, they could live on. But I mean, he literally walked away from, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year that he was making because of what he wanted to do in the civil rights movement. And after that, in the late 60s, he was one of the leading anti-war um, advocates, anti-Vietnam War advocates of the country. And then he also had this thing called the Bahamian diet, which was uh, for people to eat, eat better, okay? He ran for the mayor of Chicago. Uh, he was just, you know, I mean, really a, a social justice warrior of, of the highest uh, regard. So, uh, you know, you talk about tilting at windmills. There's no way this is going to happen. So I, I called Spike and I said, Spike, you have Dick Gregory's phone number. And he gave me Dick's phone number. Later, I realized I could have just called information in Beverly, Mass. And Dick's number was <laughs> in the phone book. But I called and I talked to uh, his wife, Lillian, who's had been married to for 54 years before Dick passed away a couple years ago. And I explained, you know, who I was and what I wanted to do. And she said, well, you know, Dick's, Dick's on the road. You know, in his 80s, he's still doing comedy shows on campuses. Um, Dick's on the road, but, uh, you know, he calls me every day, so I'll have him call you. And I said, oh, great. 
So I get a call the next day and he goes, Mark, it's Dick Gregory. And he says, uh, I'm not gonna do the Nike yet. And I said, you know, Mr. Gregory, I, I didn't think you were gonna, but you know, I appreciate you calling me back. I had a lovely conversation with your wife and um, yeah, I wish you continued luck in what you're doing. Two days later, I get a call from Dick's son, who uh, Christian, who's a, a chiropractor in DC. And he goes, hey, Mark, um, you know, you, you caused a lot of turmoil in my family. Christian, I was incredibly polite with your mom. I didn't try to, you know, push Dick to do this ad. I knew he wasn't going to do it when I called him. So what what do you mean? He said, well, you know, look, Dick and Lillian have 10 kids. They've got dozens of grandchildren. He's not supposed to play favorites, but he does have a favorite. And his favorite loves Kevin Durant and can't believe that his grandfather turned down <laughs> the right to an ad with Kevin Durant. So he said, my dad's kind of stubborn. We need to figure out a way, right? We need to plot together, figure out a way to get Dick to do this ad. So um, we got a great assist from, from Donald Sterling because this was right at the time where Sterling made his racist comments and then all of these NBA players, you know, were saying this guy's got to go. He's got to sell the Clippers. Uh, and Kevin was was part of that group with LeBron and a couple other people who were pretty vocal about there's no place in the NBA ownership group for a uh, racist. So what Christian and I came up with that Dick brought off on was that you're not doing this ad for Nike. You're doing this ad in solidarity with Kevin and the other guys who are taking a, a stance on the social justice issue. And Dick said, okay, I'll do that. He says, but I'm not taking any money for this. So I said, Dick, we, we can't not pay you for this, okay? You know, we got SAG rules and stuff. He says, okay, well, but I don't, you know, I don't want any money for this. So we um, go down to the shoots in Austin. So I have Wyden make up one of those big checks. <laughs> and I put it behind the counter with the hotel that we were going to check in. And it was a check to Dick Gregory, a super oversized check for one dollar to do the ad campaign. <laughs> but I, I have a great photo of me and Andy Whiteside <laughs> holding that uh, that uh, oversized check. And Dick, um, on the shoot, we were talking and huge fan and this new uh, TV series on John Brown. And John Brown was the abolitionist who, who led the raid on uh, Harper's Ferry where he was going to uh, seize the arms and, and try to get a slave insurrection. And um, my professor, one of my professors at, at uh, UMass had written a book to purge this land with blood that totally changed the way people had viewed John Brown. It, prior to this guy's book, it was, now this was a minor, uh, a minor incident in U.S. history where this abolitionist went down there and tried to uh, seize arms and then arm slaves. The professor went back and he looked at diaries from, from people in the South, newspapers, letters, and it was this huge fear that abolitionists were going to do what John Brown had attempted to do. 
so Dick was a, a huge fan of John Brown. So we had we had a, an immediate bond that we talked about uh, John Brown and stuff. So that you know, out of all of the uh, interesting people that I got to meet in, in the course of you know doing work for Nike and, and its ad campaigns, Dick Dick was my favorite. So after we did that, I said, you know. I'm 66. I went from getting sued by the Beatles to getting Dick Gregory and Nike ad. It's time to hang them up. You know, <laughs> I'm ready. I am now ready to retire. Oh. It's funny. <laughs> um, uh, Jonathan Johnson Griffin and I went back to DC to meet with uh, uh, Christian and Dick. And we went to an after hours uh, showing at the uh, a Museum of African American History and Culture with with Dick and his family, and they had, you know, uh, a whole um, in the top floor of the museum. They have a thing on entertainers, and they had, you know, all these videos of, of Dick performing. And when Dick passed away, Christian decided that he uh, was going to uh, leave his chiropractic practice and. Uh, just devote his time to carrying on with with the work that his dad had done. So um, I've stayed in touch with with Christian and tried to, you know, help him in some of his projects. So it was uh, it was a really, um, yeah, I think it was a nice way for me to end my career. Although I got to tell you a funny story about how I actually ended my career. Um, the day before I retired my staff decided it would be a good idea to get a, a Nike golf cart and we would just drive around the campus and I could wave goodbye to people. <laughs> and, you know, I had Nelson Ferris at his window waving goodbye. And <laughs> we got to the Fouts building and they had, because I wanted to say goodbye to people that I work with in Nike Legal, and they had just installed those turnstiles that you needed your, your card to. Oh, your badge, yeah. <laughs> Badge to get through. So we walk in, you know, and I've got my T-shirt and my, um, you know, shorts on, and um, we get to the turnstile, and I, I had left my badge back in my office. So Sarah Barrett, who worked for me, walked through, and then I just followed her right through. Okay, so we go to work. My last day at work, I put on a suit. I find a briefcase. You know, because I want to go out the way I came in, you know, 31 years earlier. The only time I think, those were the two times I wore a suit. So the first time I wore a suit, I looked around the Lido part, nobody else was wearing a suit. So there was no reason <laughs> for me to wear one. So I don't think I put on a suit and tie in the 31 years. But I get an email from this, uh, somebody in, um, oh, what, what department? Security, I guess, saying, hey, um, this is to advise you that uh, Sarah Barrett, uh, by, you know, Class C uh, felony, uh, you know, uh, she uh, allowed, uh, she, she was seen allowing an elderly white male to follow her into the <laughs> And then they, had, they even had a picture of me from the back, okay? So I contacted the guy and I sent it to Hillary Crane. Um, and I said, you know, one, 66 is an elderly. <laughs> now, this was my dad. I understand how, how you know, important security is. 
for Nike, and and um, I, I'm I'm really sorry that that happened. So I get a response back from Hillary saying to the the security, Steve, you didn't do anything wrong. Mark, you've been on our radar for a number of years now. <laughs> so I, that, they couldn't have given me a better going away present than that. That was just phenomenal to walk out having been busted for uh, trying to uh, sneak into a Nike building as an elderly white male. <laughs> That is amazing. Oh, my gosh. So with the retirement, what have you been keeping yourself like? How are you keeping yourself busy? Because I know you've been traveling. So, I mean, would love to know, like, what projects are you doing? Or are you kind of dabbling here, dabbling there and consulting or giving legal advice? I mean, would love to know. um, Look, I. Doubleday and Cartwright is a small Brooklyn, L.A. agency who had done a lot of work for Nike when I was there. And I would be the one who would have to tell them that, you know, you can't do it exactly the way you want to do it. I mean, they published a, they still publish a magazine that is really, if you haven't seen it go online, it's called the Victory Journal. And it's like the interface between sports and pop culture. Beautiful photography, great stories, you know. Under, you know, they'll tell a story about a uh, cricket team in L.A. in, in, in you know, uh, Englewood or Compton. You know, it's, it's not the stories that you see on ESPN or uh, other, uh, other more mainstream kind of sports magazines. So they asked me, Chris Eisenberg, one of, the, one of the partners, said, hey, you know, you've been telling us what we can and can't do for a number of years. How, will you consult for us when um, you retire? So I said, let me think of it, because I didn't really want to do a whole lot of stuff when I retired. But uh, it provided an opportunity to stay engaged. So, um, you know, I, I think you can deduce from my story about Dick Gregory that from a negotiating standpoint, I had pretty much done everything. I, so I, I knew I wouldn't miss going and in, in doing deals. What I would miss is spending a lot of time around people who were 30, 40 years younger than me, um, because I think it, it helped me keep a somewhat uh, younger perspective. And I like, you know, uh, trying to be helpful pe- people in figuring out Nike and figuring out, you know, their career choices and their life choices. So working with the Doubleday guys, you know, afforded me um, that opportunity. Um, What I thought it was going to be was me giving them business affairs advice, but what it turned out to be was me helping them figure Nike out. Um, You know, like they, who to work with, who to get their work in front of. And also a large part of it was people who left Nike for positions other places I would introduce Doubleday to in case they needed, um, you know, additional agency help. You know, Doubleday is not going to take the place of a Widen or a 72 and Sunny or Anomaly, but there may be projects that would be uh, worthwhile to uh, have a smaller agency take on. So I... And, time consulting with them. Um, I've got two interesting projects that I'm working on. Uh, one is uh, this guy owns the life rights to the real Chuck Taylor. Uh, there's a book on the life of Chuck Taylor. The guy bought hmm. the book rights and he's going to do a documentary on how did sneakers become such a part of pop culture. 
So I am uh, in in some function, either executive producing or producing or something, but I'm involved with that. So that eases a lot of the connections I've made in the industry. Um, I took them up to Converse pre-pandemic, and we met with Jesse and, and Tim Bergeron um, and the other Converse people, and then they were going to go up and meet. Converse has a great archives. I mean, going back from the earliest history of the country, uh, company, um, and they were going to go up to the archives and then the pandemic hit. So that kind of was put on hold, but I've still been helping the guy uh, in, in figuring out people he might like to interview either at Nike or Converse, Jordan, or outside of the company. And then, um, so that, that will be, you know, that, that keeps me somewhat occupied over the next year. And then um, a real labor of love for me is uh, I am uh, executive producing with a, a, a ex-NBA guy and some other people, a documentary on George Gervin. And it's going to be George Encore, but as much what he's done since he retired, you know, um, he runs uh, two schools, one in Phoenix and one in San Antonio, um, that, that public charter schools that serve uh, underserved communities. And he's been doing it for 25, 30 years. So he has kids whose parents went to the school and George is a very, self-effacing and modest guy. So you, you hear about David Robinson's academy and you hear what Jalen Jalen Rose has an academy in Detroit and LeBron is doing good things in Akron. But George was doing it, you know, 25 years before any of these guys were uh, in the league. So um, that's going to be a fun project. Um, so I think, you know, between those and... Uh, reading and netflix and uh meditating <laughs> yoga exercise and family I, i've had a very very contented retirement amazing well i look forward to seeing those two projects come to life i can't oh, wait man. and you know i respect you a hell of a lot mark because like i feel like you've for for myself personally speaking you've definitely made me feel a part of nike connecting we've had some good laughs with a few athletes um and you know shane's probably one of the people that we all know and we we get along with and um you know i i like i said i totally am so thankful to actually just be able to know you and connect with you and talk to you and message you whenever i can well and and i for both of you guys, I am here. If there's anything I can do for you, or you just need an ear to bounce some ideas off of something happening in your careers or life experiences, I, 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 I seriously, I miss doing that. So I've kept in touch. You know, I've got a pretty good cadre of, of younger folks that I knew at Nike that I've stayed. And guys, don't don't be offended by the term younger. Younger to me is fifty five and below. So. <laughs> I'm not negative. I was okay. stressed. But I like staying in touch with you guys. So um more than happy again, you know, if you're looking at if you think of a line of questioning that had something to do with, with the book or 
you know, my career. I'm happy to hop back on uh, with you guys at another time and, you know, have another go of it. We're so grateful and thankful for your time. I mean, like you are definitely on our list of talking to people for sure. And and like, it was great just to have you kind of talk about your history and, you know, stories. And we'll definitely have you back for sure. I would love it. Okay, it's time to make quesadillas. (laughs) All right, Jesse and I will be over. What time is dinner? (laughs) All right, thanks so much, Mark.